Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 155. It's about the mission, bro. This week we're discussing season 3, episode 3 of Angel, That Old Gang of Mine, and season 1, episode 10 of Battlestar Galactica, The Hand of God. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, Angel first this time, that old mm-hmm. gang of mine. Um, I think you wanted to start off with some comments by the writer of this episode, who is Tim Minear. Yeah, right. And so I think I had mentioned last week that Tim Minear wrote the episode. Um, so he actually didn't like it <laughs> that much. Um, he he actually says that... Uh, uh, well, let me let me find the quote here exactly. So, um, in an interview, like in two thousand seven or so, he, um, you know, was asked about the script, and and apparently someone had said like that he was pleased with the script and whatever. But but he clarified, said, "No, I I was pretty much loathed that script, <laughs> uh, but I felt weak as the script was. That had it been shot differently, that would have made have been made a huge difference." Uh, as it happened, it was my weakest script, coupled with the most unfocused direction, just painful all the way around. Hmm. So, um, which is pretty interesting, because, I mean, you've heard me before talk about Tim Minear, and mm-hmm. and I've raved about Tim Minear and how much I like his stories. And actually, I don't I don't know that this one is quite, quite as bad as he, even he says. I mean, sure. um, I don't know that it's perfect. It's certainly not his best script. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not even his best angel script, but, uh, I don't, I don't know that I would say like it, that it's terrible or, or lacks focus. I think, I think, well, whether it lacks focus or not, like there's certainly some indecision on Gunn's part. So you could almost argue that the lack of focus, if it is there is mm-hmm. appropriate in the way too. Um, mm. but Anyway, so yeah, I just wanted to sort of note that, like, um, at least to to him, the script isn't that great. And there are, I will admit, there are some, like, tin moments, if if you know what I mean, like, just mm. where the dialogue maybe does seem a little pat or a little, um, I hate the word contrived, because, mm. like, all stories are of necessity contrived, like, you contrive a story. That's um, one of those moments where we share a brain, because I've had that thought to myself many times. Like, yeah, yeah, like I understand what that criticism means or what it's supposed to mean. I just don't know that that's accurate for what it's actually trying to say. Yeah. Um, but, but there are certainly moments where it's like, you know, the character, like I I would say, um, Geo feels a little flat to me Mm -hmm. in places as a character. Um, you know, there's some hints about his background and stuff, but it's, He's basically just there to sort of rile up the gang against mm-hmm. uh, Gun, and and I'm not sure like I, I'm wholly convinced by by that. But anyway, mm. so you know, I, I would say like I do have some problems with the story, maybe, and we can talk a little bit about those as we go through. But I I think sort of on the whole, like sort of glossing over like maybe some of the rough points, like 
I kind of like the story and the angle that it takes at least. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, you know, again, we can talk about certain aspects as we go through, but I guess, I don't know if you have any thoughts there and I can, we can link to that interview. Actually, it's like the only way that you can find it at this point is like through archive.org, like in the Wayback machine, but, um, <laughs> we can, we can at least, you know, yeah. link to that, um, in our yeah. Yeah. story notes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny to hear what what bugs him because yeah, I kind of agree. Like, I'm not sure that focus is the problem. Um, you know, it, it. I I don't know that I agree with that at all. Actually, like, it kind of seems like it it there really aren't any other plot lines that are distracting you from Gunn's story. You know, so it's certainly very squared on his sort of dilemma and his point of view. And I feel like I understand it all the way through. Like, at no point am I, like, confused about what, you know, he might be confused as a character, but I'm not confused about what he's confused about, if that makes sense. Um, Yes. Yeah, and and maybe, like, Geo being kind of underdeveloped or underserved as a character is part of... I think what bugs me is... I feel like it's slightly unfortunate that, like, the time... Because we've had this building, and I, I'm sure it'll continue, but I'm. it's nice to have it discussed up front, this building issue of should we uh, be indiscriminately killing demons or not. Um, right. And we've had... In Buffy, but definitely in Angel, I think this has been with Doyle and then even more so with Lorne, this has been an ongoing question. And so it's yeah. nice to have that out in the open and like, all right, this right. is an issue that we need to talk about. Um, I think the part that holds me back is I feel like it's unfortunate that like that becomes the plot point when you're also dealing with Gunn and his crew. Because to me, I find a, a lot of unfortunate like racial undertones in this like Mm. it kind of bugs me that like all right really like when you want to talk about racism against demons it's going to be the mostly black crew that's like being racist against them like that just feels unfortunate to me i'm sure that wasn't intentional you know but like it it I'm, I'm just, not 100% sure it's not. I mean, well, and, and in which case, then I, there's some wrist slapping to be, to sure. be had. You know, when you have, like, you know, the the mostly black street crew who are now armed with heavy weaponry bursting in and holding everyone hostage and, like, going after people based on their, you know, their race, magical or otherwise, um that's just not great for me. You know, like, I think that it kind of has some, you know, troubling, it, it just bugs me. Um, so sure. like, um, uh, like that John Travolta movie, uh, white man's burden kind of thing. Like, sure. Like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like it really, if you want to make a point about magical racism, I don't know that it serves you to have the bad guys be black. Like, <laughs> like I don't, it's just, you know, well, and it, and I would, I, I agree. Like, I, it feels like, like they clearly had black, other black actors and stuff. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's the mostly black group, yeah. you know, against like the mostly white group and demons, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? So like, right. yeah. like yeah. a little more diversity sort of all around would be, yeah. 
would you know would would have been a better maybe yeah sort of thing. And I don't mind that like Gunn's crew are mostly you know uh, you know black actors like that. I mean, that makes sense. Like it's LA, sure. you know, and like, but like, yeah, I don't, I just wish that they and, weren't and used. And they're specifically lower class. Right. Like, right. And, and yeah. they're trying to make points about LA. Like, you know, I, I felt like that was more appropriate when it's like, you know, the, the police versus street kids thing. Like sure. that felt more, um, appropriate and just nuanced, I guess. Like it, like a little bit more. Yeah. I don't know, fair-minded? Whereas, like, here, it's like they're kind of set up to be the, like, scapegoats, you know, against, you know, the demons who now we're supposed to, like, kind of want to defend. And, you know, it's just, it's just, I'm not quite sure that it, I just wished it wasn't them in this, being used to make this point, I guess. Um, and maybe if Geo was like slightly better written or better acted that would have helped like if if he had a more nuanced position that he was coming from um because i think like with rondell and with gun who i guess we can start talking about it's not like their their hesitations are totally unsympathetic you know like i think like it does a fairly good job of presenting it as reasonable that um they wouldn't be just all cuddly with all the demons like Rondell is now the new guy kind of leading the crew in Gunn's absence and he sees this as carrying on the mantle of what Gunn started and as far as he's concerned all demons as far as he knows I think all demons are just out there trying to kill humans and so there's not that moral conflict with him like, I don't think it's necessarily occurred to him that there's, like, a moral conflict there. And he's being led and pushed around by Geo, who's a more, you know, kind of, I don't know, aggressive personality and everything. Um, sure. And, like, with Gunn, I think it does a pretty good job of showing, like, Gunn's conflict about that. So, like, yeah, he's responding to these uh, murders and stuff, and he's kind of puzzled as to why you know Angel and Wesley are even looking into this at all which could seem callous except that you know when he there's that moment when he kind of says like all right if we find a demon hunter are we going to like thank it or kill it and Wesley's like I don't know (laughs) which like sure seems like a legitimate question like from the point of view of, yeah, yeah, it's our, like, Buffy's a vampire slayer. Angel is, like, and his team are out there, like, defending humanity against demons. Exactly when did we cross that line into becoming defenders of demons as right. well as people? And that's, like, I think that's been a gradual progression. So that's an interesting and, question to ask, I think. And it's not, it's not, uh... So, like, you bring up Buffy, too. Like, I feel like like we had that conversation between her and Faith, right? Like, Faith was like, kill everything. And not just kill everything, but, but actively go out seeking things to kill. Mm-hmm. Whereas Buffy was like, we should only really be worrying about the things that are going out and killing other people. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, the demon that's selling books and trying to get out of town doesn't, like... 
I'm not right. worried about him. You know, right. I'm not going to cry over him necessarily, but I'm not like worried about him. I don't enough yeah. to like kill him and hunt him down and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas faith was like a demon's a demon, you know, they'd all need to die. And mm-hmm. I feel like, I do feel like this is in some ways like a continuation, like, like you said, of that same sort of conversation. Um, I think from a writing perspective, one of the things that bugs me too about, um, like you commented on, on Wesley's sort of, I don't know, response to, are we going to, you know, kill it or thank it? Mm -hmm. Like there could have even just been like another line or two of explanation there of, you know, the fact, you know, the reason we're looking into it isn't because we necessarily kill care about the demons who are killed, even though like we know Merle, um, was mostly harmless and Mm -hmm. like even helped in some ways, but you know, it's not so much that, like, there's something going around killing demons, but it's that we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it might be killing demons, which which means, okay, it, it, it could be on our side, but mm-hmm. it could also not be on our side. Mm-hmm. And, like, just just that, that uh, like, the reason we're investigating isn't because it's killing demons. It's because we need to figure out what it is. Like, I feel like maybe that's implied in a few mm-hmm. places, but it's mm-hmm. not ever really stated and and like that's the sort of explanation where you know gun might say oh okay well so we're not necessarily doing this for the demons we're doing it to make sure whatever's killing the demons doesn't start killing humans too yeah or maybe it has been killing humans too all along we just we just need to know one way Mm -hmm. or the other Mm -hmm. and then assess from there like what we need to do next like i feel like that would have been a fairly simple explanation to sort of like give saved and, like, everyone a lot of trouble yeah just like whatever <laughs> yeah and then and then you could deal yeah. with you know once they find out that it's you know guns old gang then you could deal with that fact and it doesn't i it takes on a different sort of tone it's not like mm. I, I don't know just it, you know, you could even have it play out the same way where it's like, okay, they're still hunting places and they found a nest, which turns out to be Caritas. And, mm-hmm. you know, like you can still have that kind of stuff, but it, I think, shifts the tone even a little bit slightly more, more away from like what you were saying with regard to, you know, maybe the racial undertones and stuff. It, it becomes more, I don't know what the explanation I'm trying to think of is, but. But it just be, it, it's not, given that explanation of why they're going after it, mm-hmm. then it becomes like, oh, okay, it was you guys doing this all along. Let's talk about why you're doing this rather than, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe they still would have been obtuse and threatening sure. and Geo would have been his same old self. But at least then, like, Gun would have already sort of been, I don't know, maybe I'm just trying to to rewrite it so that gun is kind of less of a jerk in those moments or not a sure. jerk even sure. maybe that's not even the right way to say it, but less of a, yeah, I don't know, whatever, but, um, yeah, yeah. It, uh, to jump ahead to the end, um, it, there was something else that something similar that occurred to me too, of one of those moments of like one more line of dialogue would have like saved everybody a lot of pain here. And, and maybe this undercuts the point, of the, the episode, which maybe gets to Tim Minear's, uh criticism of it as unfocused, of not quite honing in on what it wants to say. But the, the part when Wesley 
kind of chews him out at the end and gives his ultimatum. Um, yeah. And like, you know, or he kind of seems to be sympathetic for a minute and then it turns and it's, if you ever do this again, that's it. Like, you know, zero tolerance, you know, mm-hmm. reaction to that. Um, it, it, that and earlier when Gunn, when he's so betrayed that Gunn didn't tell him this, I really just wanted Gunn to say, like, I was going to tell you, like, <laughs> I was literally on my way here to tell you, like, like, yeah, sure. like, I guess he hems and haws on it a little bit, but like, not really. Um, all he does is like, take the arrowhead to go find out for sure if it really was them. And then he pretty much goes straight to well, the bar and- to talk to Wesley about it. And he gets interrupted by the whole thing. Right. So I kind of feel like... And and also, you know, in, in Gunn's defense, he he doesn't realize that it's the entire crew right. at first. Right. Like he, he thinks, right. he thinks, he it's, thinks this it's one... Yeah. Geo and maybe like a rogue or two. Like, right, right. Like he doesn't know that it's the entire group. So when he finds that out, that's when he decides to yep. go yeah. look for Wesley and them. So yeah, yeah you're right. Like yeah. they're, yeah. And yeah, like I, I get, maybe that is the kind of unfocus of the, of the script because I get why it ends that way for the, you know, like they, they want there to be this kind of chilly ending between Wesley and Gunn. But I don't know if this if the story totally justifies it. Like I don't know that Gunn does enough to betray that trust to really sure. earn that, um, you know, uh, that kind of like message from Wesley. Um, mm-hmm. Like mes- maybe Wesley thinks it's earned, but I don't know that. I wish Gunn would defend himself a little bit more, and you know. Um, yeah. So yeah, like I feel like it. I get what I, I think like we're on the same page as far as what the story is kind of doing in terms of the character development. Maybe there's just a few places where the writing isn't as strong as it normally is from, from Tim Minear. And I feel like this is the least Tim Minear of the episodes we've had from him so far, you know, <laughs> and maybe that's why. Sure. Tim, is that an adjective I can use? I mean, um, it works. Like, and maybe like the fact that it doesn't play to those strengths, like, like it doesn't do the stuff like we have come to associate him with, like these kind of backstory explorations and histories and and non linear like structures and all that kind of sure. stuff that he really likes to do. And maybe this is a case of like the story is maybe a little more straightforward than what is really suitable for the kind of stories that he's interested in telling and everything. Um, mm. You know. Sure. So. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we kind of went all over the place with Gunn's our, story. Um, our discussion about Gunn is unfocused. It is. <laughs> Much like the episode now um well one thing also we had discussed and didn't end up calling the episode out of the box is where i live um which is the starbuck quote from bsg but we kind of liked it for gun because um you know again we've had building 
uh, and we've had slight climaxes, but we've had continuing this this being torn between these two worlds, these two gangs that you know Gunn has had, um, and it kind of seems like if this isn't the last we see of his crew, it's definitely like you know a, a decisive break from that. Like he finally does you know, he's forced to make a choice one way or the other in this episode. Hmm. Um, and he is, like, out of the box in the sense that he doesn't... You can't put him in one. He doesn't belong to any of these... The choice is hard because he doesn't really fit in either of these two boxes, right? Like, he can't... He can't really go back to, you know, the way life used to be you know, with his old crew, but nor has he fully committed to Angel and the gang and everything. Um, you know, and you kind of made the point before we started recording that, like, everybody in L.A. and in this show is a misfit, but even among them, you know, Gunn is maybe the most misfit of all. Like, he doesn't fully, you know, belong with either category. Um mm either in his sort of, you know, because he hasn't committed to it or just because of who he is. Like you pointed out, you know, that uh, Angel and Wesley and Cordy all knew each other from Sunnydale and, you know, Gunn didn't, um, you know, so like there are reasons that kind of keep him, hold him slightly at bay from the group. Sure. Um, Yeah, and Angel ends up Kind of, well, Geo obviously, um, makes him make a choice. But Angel kind of supports that. You know, like, Angel seems kind of, you know, a little fed up with the, with the indecisiveness and wanting him to, you know, make a decision. And even, like, does his little vamp face thing to, you know, make it right. easier. You right. know? <laughs> uh, you know, slight like death wish there but like you know he really like one way or the other gun is going to choose something you know um you know and angel's thing in the end is uh you know i'll really trust you if i know that you would kill me so it's not enough to prove that he would never hurt angel it's like there's a further step of loyalty and that's to be willing to kill him if he had to Right. Yeah, which, you know, reminds us again that, like, and actually we get one other reminder, too, right, that, like, Angel could go bad, right, like, mm-hmm. again, like, um, when uh, when he says near the beginning, like, oh, I went bad and killed Merle, right, like, like mm-hmm. there's that, or I went dark, I think he says, and killed Merle, like, it's just... A couple of those reminders, like, that he could, you know, and, and just thinking about the fact that, that he says that at the beginning, and then at the end you get the conversation between Angel and Gunn about, oh, you know, I want to make sure you could mm-hmm. in case you have to. Like, you yeah. know, just, just again, reminders. Like, we're not ever completely 100% sure, which is, which is, I think, more... Like, I don't even know if that's intentional in this episode or how intentional that is. 
But like that's that is a reminder that like in one sense like I'm not saying I like the fact that Rundell and crew are going around indiscriminately killing demons. But there is still something, you know, bad about demons. Mm-hmm. There's also something bad about humans. Like, you know, that's not mm-hmm. to say that, like, humans are scot-free or anything. Right. You know, but but demons are still demons. Like, they are still kind of right. They're like, demons do pose a threat just by their nature. Humans also pose a threat by their nature. Mm-hmm. But But, you know, like, talking about Angel specifically, like, there is that fact that, like, underlying, yes, he has a soul, but that doesn't, like, there are people with souls who do bad things. Like, mm-hmm. having a soul does not necessarily make you a good person. And, you know, so it's just that that reminder of, you know, Angel, there is a dark side to Angel. And it could come back. And there might be a time when Gunn would have to make sure that that dark side yeah. doesn't hurt other people. And, and especially Gunn, like, as mm-hmm. opposed to other people in the group, right? Because mm-hmm. what does, uh, you know, Wesley say when they go into, like, the second apartment and they see, like, the demon gore all over? And he's like, oh, I think if we ever find this thing, we should have Gunn we with us. Yeah. Like, like yeah. Gunn is clearly the muscle, you know? Right. I mean... Angel can keep his own, and even Wesley has shown himself to be of use in a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gunn is clearly like he—he's the street tough, you know, right. guy. Like he's the one that that you want to have by your side when you're facing some unknown danger. Um, Which is like a great, uh, you know, uh, kind of the name is a real metaphor there. Like he's sure he's the weapon of the group. Like he's the the thing which physically protects you, you know, and like yeah. your tool. Um, and I don't think not in the sense of they're using him that way. Like as I think he obviously no. brings more to the group than just as a tool and as a weapon, but that kind of, you know, physical power is sort of implied in the name, I think. Yeah. And, and the street smarts, like he, he's the one who's always gone out and beaten the streets to try to get, you know, right. some, some word because, you know, one, because that's his experience. He knows people. Um, although at this point, I think we see that people are starting to distrust him on the streets, right? So mm. how good he is at that may may change as well. But he's not a researcher. He's not, a, you know, a former watcher or anything. He doesn't have the visions like Cordy. He's not supernaturally strong and doesn't, he doesn't have like the higher power mission Mm -hmm. that angel has, like there's no prophecies about him or anything. Right. So, you know, what does that make him? It's, it's basically that's it. He's the muscle. He's the the street smart guy. He's, you know, the one you want to have by you in a fight, but isn't, you know, necessarily the, the lead, you know, he's not the leader. He's not the, smart one who can, you know, look things up and figure things out necessarily. Not not saying he's dumb, but mm-hmm. he's just that's he's not the intellectual, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So right. Yeah, and well 
just from what you're saying there, it reminds me of, like, he's not the leader, and, like, you know, this switch from, uh, you know, Angel to Wesley as the leader of the group, mm. um, like, and I wasn't necessarily thinking of this at the time, but it's just sort of striking me how much of a shift that is that we've seen from Gunn's loyalty to Angel now to Wesley, you know, like to the, I mean, like, yeah, there's like tensions and frustrations in this episode, which makes, you know, Angel and what's and Gunn are kind of sniping at each other a little more than usual, but there's this very, you know, uh, strong sense now of, uh, Gunn saying, um, you know, he keeps saying like, did you get put back in charge because, you know, I missed that memo. Or, you know, when he goes to the hotel, um, he he doesn't even want to tell Angel what he's found out. He wants to talk to the boss, as he says. Like, he wants to... Uh-huh. He doesn't even want to have that conversation with Angel. It's like, this yeah. is a private thing which I'm going to tell to my my superior, you know, my commander, you know, not you. So, like, yeah, there's... Obviously, there's, like, personal issues kind of underlaying that. But, like, how different that was from when their relationship first started. When, like, Gunn sort of had respect for Angel. Like, wary, but had, you know, you know, wary respect for Angel. And kind of treated Wesley like like the complete incompetent. You know, like, like I'm thinking of, like, when he's, like, throwing crystal balls around for like, you know, for Wesley to catch, like that was their relationship was, you know, he kind of teased him as like this sort of geeky, goofy, you know, sidekick. And he's not anywhere near deserving the kind of respect that Angel does. Um, But those tables have sort of turned now, Um, you know, and Gunn keeps consistently looking to Wesley for, you know, explanations for why they're doing certain things and making decisions for, like, direction of what he should do or, like, approval. Like, you know, it's like Wesley who says, like, okay, if you can't get behind this, you should go home or you should, you know, you can right. help us by beating the streets or whatever. Right. Um, you know, and it's no longer... It, it's like Gunn doesn't even look or want that direction from Angel anymore. That... That sure. loyalty has shifted entirely over to Wesley. Um, and considering Gunn used to be the one in charge, right? He was the one who created his old crew, right? Like, sure, yeah. So there, there's... Right, he certainly has leadership qualities, you know? Right, Yeah. right. Um, yeah, sorry, there was another thing I was going to say, and I can't remember exactly what it was now. Um yeah. No, I definitely, I mean, you're right, like, that he's, he's, well, okay, so I agree with you, that he's certainly not saying that he's looking to Angel, but this is what I was going to say, I just remembered. Um, we get to the the mission part, right? Mm-hmm. And what does he say to Gio and Rondell, or Rondell primarily? He says, he's got the mission, you don't. Like, Mm -hmm. speaking about Angel. Mm -hmm. So even though, like, I think everything you said is right, like, as far as he's looking at 
Wesley as the leader of the group and to, you know, going to him for decisions and instruction and whatnot. Um, Still, Angel is sort of the primary person because he's Mm -hmm. the one who has the powers, blessing, mission, whatever you want to call it. You know, Angel's the one who they're really there to support, even though Wesley is the de facto leader. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not de facto. He's he's the named leader. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, anyway, just to say that, like, yes, Gunn is taking orders from Wesley and going to Wesley to, you know, give information and that kind of stuff. But there is the fact that, like, his whole reason for being there is because Angel's the one who has the mission. And, sure. And you get the sense, and this is why I, I personally liked the title that we chose um, slightly over the one we didn't choose, mm-hmm. um, that it's about the mission, bro. Uh, because, because I feel like it's not just like, I don't think Gunn's just saying Angel has a mission and I'm, I'm following him because he has a mission. I, I get the feeling that it's like, like there, that there's a more objective mission. It's not like Angel has his own subjective mission and, and Wesley's there or Gunn's there to support it and Wesley and Cordy and whoever else. Mm-hmm. Um, Fred kind of, um, but it's about the mission. Like, I almost get the sense that it's like, this is like a proper noun, like that, mm. that there's something more objective and that like, it's the same mission that Gunn was following before. Mm-hmm. And that for him, this is like a better way to follow that mission mm-hmm. because Angel has it too. They're like, you, you know, they're fellow travelers on a path kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that, Gun is there to support Angel's mission. It's that they're both after the same right. mission, right. Um, and that Rondell should be and maybe was when he was following Gun on that mission. But but now he's he's lost sight of it. He's he's you know whatever the mission is. However, Gun defines that because he seems to be the one who's like worried about that at this point, right? Like he keeps talking about the mission, the mission, but we don't actually get what the mission is we get what it's not it's not indiscriminately killing demons yeah um and we get like whatever angel's doing seems to be the mission although Mm -hmm. we've also seen angel at times go off mission so you know uh, it's not everything that angel does but at least now at this Mm -hmm. point in time angel's the one who has the mission yeah uh and Gunn understands what that mission is and is, is going after it. I, I feel like I, I feel kind of weird saying the mission, the mission, the mission over and over <laughs> again. But like, you know, what I mean, like that. Can you say mission? Yeah, because we don't get a clear definition. And I think that's part of part right. of the problem. And maybe that's part of the lack of focus that Minear talks about. But I do feel like like we, you know, Gunn certainly makes that clear. And I and I get the sense that like for Gunn his leadership of the group that he built before and his switching over to angel isn't a a change in values or mission Mm -hmm. or purpose or whatever you want to call it. Like Mm 
Like, I almost get the sense of, like, this might be a stretch, but think of, like, political parties that change over, like, decades, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, their platforms change and this and that change. And, like, over time you get, like, maybe members who switch from one party to another. But, like, when you look at, like, what they believe, maybe maybe that has never really changed. Mm-hmm. It's just that, like, the people who support them have changed and what they call themselves has changed a bit. And mm-hmm. so they identify with different groups of people maybe than they used to, but it's it's not, like... It, they don't have the tribal lore, uh, loyalty, right? It's mm-hmm. not that, like, I'm loyal to this group because it's this group. They have the more ideological loyalty of, I used to be in that group because at a certain time they believed this particular thing. And I'm I'm really, I'm struggling because I'm really trying not to mention one, one particular party over <laughs> another. Like, you know, like, I think it goes both ways. Like, right. I feel like there's pro- it's probably happened right. in both directions. And so... Right. You, you know, it's not so much about like, uh, you know, oh, I have I have loyalty to a party or to a group or, you know, tribe of people per se, but it's that I have a loyalty to a loyalty to an idea, mm-hmm. and given you know, given my thoughts on that idea, this group supports that better than this right. than the other group that I used to belong to does, right. and I feel like right. that's kind of what gun is getting at here like that Mm -hmm. that for him it's always been about them you know all the snide remarks about alana and the Mm -hmm. the weird like incestuous like yeah accusations that get made Uh because like i'm not sure i totally understand that or why guns bothered by it (laughs) like like other than that like you're talking about my sister you know who's dead like it and that being troublesome like right like gun seems to the looks on his face seem to give like Geo's like more yeah, more yeah. credence than I would have expected. Yeah, <laughs> you know to to whatever. But anyway, um, yeah, maybe that's another point Minear didn't like. Um, I, we're we're actually finding quite a lot to criticize about this episode. The more we talk about it, but <laughs> um, sure. you know, I do I do think that like back to like the ide- ideological stuff. Like I do feel like that's where Gun sort of. Um, you know, it was coming from is that it's 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 not about like his his ideology didn't change his mission didn't change mm-hmm. it's you know who he's in connection with and who you know how he goes about fulfilling that mission that has changed and yeah and I I think that's distinctive because I think there are people who ascribe more to tribalism than to ideology they're Mm -hmm. they're more concerned about and maybe this goes to the the racial overtones or undertones or askance tones or whatever tones you want to call them um like that you were talking about before like you know it's more about that you know being a member of a group rather Mm -hmm. than you know whatever and and so maybe that just feels racial because we've have so much of that in the real world Mm -hmm. um and and in the you know uh in the storied world as well um right you know so like maybe there's there's some of that going on and and there are people who would rather identify with a group rather than with an idea and and so when the group's makeup changes like 
their idea changes. Mm. Um, anyway, so I don't know. I just, I think that seems to be the sort of main point to Gunn's right. character. And I know I've sort of probably belabored the point and, and browbeat it a little bit, but, um, no, it's good. I have, did you have something? Cause I had a couple. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so like, I think two things that that makes me think one is like, I, I think that makes sense. And that makes it even more interesting that like, as you said, yes, Angel is still the central focus of Gunn's loyalty, but it's that makes it even more interesting that Angel's not the leader because it, Angel's importance is weirdly kind of separate from Angel himself. Like, if it's about the larger mission and him having touch with these, like, you know, higher beings and purposes and, like, you know, the greater good, it... it, it that doesn't have much to do with like with Angel or it doesn't seem to have much to do with Angel himself, like what he believes, what choices he makes. Like, yes, he can make bad choices and go off the mission. So he has the capability of doing that. It's not like what Angel says is gospel, you know, like Angel can be completely wrong about stuff. Um, yeah. And and that's a separate thing from the purity of like the mission. Um, so Gunn kind of being more loyal to, you know, the mission and what that represents rather than every decision Angel makes, which is why Angel's not the leader anymore, you know? So he can be the sort of subject of their, you know, uh, kind of purpose without actually being like the head of it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so, like, I think that's, like, not really a conflict to say, like, you know, in some ways, like, yeah, Angel is the most, is kind of the figurehead, but, like, Wesley's the one actually, like, calling the shots. Right. Um, and also, from, like, Gunn's point of view, that makes me think that, like, you know, I feel like Wesley's thing at the end, which struck me as quite harsh and cold, like, ooh, Mm. you know, like, that surprised me to have that kind of, um, you know, just absolute severe reaction from Wesley and everything. Sure. Um, And it seems like, maybe you have a different perspective, but it seems like what Wesley's saying is loyalty to the group or the party, as you call it, is, is foremost. You know, that, like, Whatever you do, I can't let anyone compromise the others. We have to be loyal to each other. And anybody that betrays that is is to be, you know, expelled from the group because that's a breach of trust. Whereas I don't know that if Gunn's loyalty is to the mission, capital M, before any one person, whether that's Angel or, like, Wesley or, like, the team, like... I could see him like making that choice again to choose the mission over the group or or a specific individual within the group. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying like I don't know that he's if like Angel wants him to have picked a side in the end. I don't mm. know that he's picked it in the sense that like Wesley wants him to. Like 
if his decision is still the mission comes first, yeah. well, what if the mission comes up against Wesley's decisions as a leader? Or, or the mission comes against the specific safety of the group in a particular instance. It sounds like, you know, Gunn is still confirmed that he's thinking big picture. Um, right. You know, and I mean, I think they all are to a certain extent, but like, it seemed like Wesley really wanted to emphasize the personal loyalty at the end there, um, rather than like loyalty to the idea or, you know, um, yeah, the mission. I was trying to think of another word of rather than mission, so I didn't have to say mission again. But. <laughs> it's impossible. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you're right. Wesley is saying uh, loyalty to the, to the group is important. At the same time, Wesley also excuses Gunn when he sort of has, like, um, what, what is it, like, when, you know, the, the people who, like, objected to the draft, uh, conscientious, conscientious uh, objection, yeah, uh, yeah. objection. Yeah. like, when, when Gunn has a conscientious, con- yeah, that, uh, <laughs> like, Wesley says, okay, like, if you don't need, if you can't support this, then you go, so I, I feel like there's, yeah, but that's there's... not, like, endangering anybody. Like, well, I potentially, think his point... because, because at, at, like, Gunn's help could be what helps them find out. And, like, they've are, like we've already talked about how they see Gunn as being, like, the muscle of the group. So if Gunn's not there, his sure. not being there could be putting people in sort of needless danger. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm, playing, I'm playing devil's advocate to a bit with yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's later that Wesley says, oh, we are going to need gun. Like, maybe he thought that they didn't, and then they he changes his mind, you know? Sure. Um, um, my point, though, is more that, like, it. I feel like it's, a, it, it's sort of the type of association that I think is sort of, like, enshrined in, like, First Amendment type stuff. Whereas it's like, it, it's voluntary association. He's not saying like, you know, you you uh, have to be part of the group. Like, we're forcing you to be part of this group. Mm-hmm. Which kind of is what Rondell and them are saying. Mm-hmm. They're saying like, if you're not yeah. one of us, then we're going to kill you. Because, you know, if you're not, one, you're of not us, one of us, then you're one of them. Then you're yeah. one of them. You're the yeah. enemy, so we're going to kill you. Yeah, That's pretty much what they're saying. I don't think Wesley's saying that. I'm, I think he's saying if you're not one of us, then you can't be one of us. Like, right. like if yes. you're not if you're not going to support the group, then you're going to be out of the group. But but I think that's a, I mean that's clearly a different thing than saying we're going to kill you for. Oh yeah. So, no, so, and I no, and I didn't take that as like a threat in that sense. Yeah. No. No. Um, and I I guess I guess I I'm just saying like I, I feel like. I feel like the 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 key point there, and why I, why I'm stressing like the First Amendment voluntary association aspect of it, is because like like the decision that there that the group is together again, with maybe the exception of Fred, who's just kind of there, <laughs> but certainly like of the main four of them, yeah, you know, Angel, Cordy, Wesley, and Gunn, 
they're there for the mission. Like, like mm-hmm. the reason they're together is to, you know, pursue the mission. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's, I think the threat there that Wesley's saying is if you're not going to help us support the mission, then, then you're out of the group. Like I, which I just, I see that as qualitatively different than the sort of Rondell tribalism type stuff. Yeah. No, I think I definitely see it as different than Rondell's perspective. I guess I just feel like Gunn makes it very clear that his decision to not kill Angel is not based on personal loyalty, but on the mission, you know, um, and and yet, Wes so if it would not... further the mission, he would kill Angel. Is kind of what you're saying. Um, I mean, in, I mean, in theory, which is what Angel says at the end too. Like, sure, if you have to kill me, you should. You know, if that's the right thing to do, objectively, according to the mission. Like, if we're if we're assuming that the mission is good, you know, that we all right. have like. We all believe ourselves to be serving the bigger, greater good. Right, the um, higher powers. And, then, yeah. in theory, yes. You know, there could be a circumstance in which killing Angel would be, according to the, those rules, you know, what's needed and what's necessary. And Angel says that, you know. Um, mm. And, you know, I think... Could Gunn do that? I don't know. He seems open to the idea in the sense of I think he wants to do right by the mission. Whereas I feel like I don't think that Wesley doesn't think that way, but then why does he go out of his way to, you know, you know, uh, criticize him for that? I think what he's being, you know, kind of cut down for is his, that, that personal loyalty, that, you withheld information from me, which personally endangered, you know, the, the, the safety of the others. And I'm not saying that Wesley believes that that's more important than anything, but like, he's placing that at like a higher, you know, like he's making sure that Gunn also sees the importance of that as well, I guess. And it's hard because I'm not saying that Wesley doesn't care about the mission and I'm not saying that Gunn doesn't have personal loyalty. Like, obviously, I think sure. both of both of them have both of those things. But I think there's well, some... There's, and, there's just... Wesley wants to make sure they're on the same page. And I'm not sure that they totally are, is all I'm saying. Like, I think Gunn... You know, still there's that sense of there's, you know, the mission above all. Um but. Sure, sure. I I don't necessarily disagree with that. And part of it is we'll just have to see where it goes. But yeah, we shall. All right. So, in the uh, last do we few need minutes. to talk about any <laughs> other characters <laughs> at this point? I mean, we didn't talk a ton about Joe and Rondell, but yeah, I mean. Like I said, I, I feel like Geo's kind of flat. I don't know that yeah. we need to talk a lot about him. Um, sure. I no, mean, he gets Ra- his head bitten off at the end, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and Rondell. So, like, I can't remember if we mentioned already. Um, he is the one that, in, like, the Thin Blue Line, you know, him mm-hmm. and... Oh, shoot. What was Gunn's other friend? Um, the one who died. George? Yeah, that's, I think, right. Yeah, um, I think he mentions him in this episode. He does, right. Because um, he, he said that was the last time... Rondell says that was the last time he saw a gun. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but Rondell was there when, like, Wesley got shot and all that. So there's, you know, I don't know what to say about all that more other than that, like, I don't know that we see Gunn's old gang much anymore after this. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, like, I feel like this is kind of the resolution of that sort of side story um Mm -hmm. unless there's some major thing that i'm forgetting um but yeah like i kind of feel like like this is this is the tie and like um the tie that breaks i mean sorry i didn't mean to leave it sort of hanging there uh like this is the end of it like the 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 Mm -hmm. loose end that gets tied up um so yeah like I don't know. Like, I don't know what to say more beyond that. Just that, like, I feel like that's notable. But sure. I don't know that it's it's momentous in a way, but, like, I don't know that, like, we need to bother about it much more. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, this. I think Gunn makes his choice here. Like, he's presented with, you know, at least in my view, like, he's presented with you know, the old gang or the new gang, and he finds the third way. It's not about the gangs, it's about the mission, you know? And, yeah, the new gang is aligned with the mission, and that's why I'm going with them, but it's about this larger thing. And so at that point, the need for the old gang, I think, sort of, you know, diminishes. So that doesn't really... I mean, they seem to kind of part on okay terms, like Geo dies, so that's the end of that conflict. And like, I think Rondell for the bad things he does was mostly misguided more than anything else. Like, it doesn't seem like he was a violent weirdo. Like Geo was like, he thought he was doing the right thing and was sort of maybe led astray by Geo. So it seems to me like when they're kind of saying goodbye to each other, like, yeah, I don't think Gunn and Rondell are going to hang out anytime soon, but they're, like, oh, on okay terms. Like, they've parted sort of cordially enough um, mm-hmm. and agreed to kind of go their separate ways. So it's not like there's any tension there that still has to be, like, resolved or anything. Sure. So, yeah, it doesn't... I think that that makes sense that they kind of start to fade out from the story and everything. Um, Of the other characters, I mean, I feel like the ones I really just want to make sure we talk about for a few minutes is Cordy and Fred. So, um, unless there's anything else in particular. Um, Mm. So, yeah, we get uh, Cordy kind of awkwardly trying to reach out to Fred. She's not quite sure how to relate to her. They really, you know, are, you know, very different from each other personally. And, you know, you can see them 
not knowing exactly how to approach the other one. Um, but Cordy kind of making an effort to, you know, take her under her wing. And like at the end, I think genuinely feeling protective of her, like not wanting to leave, you know, like, okay, if I have to go, then Fred's going to come with me. Like she doesn't want to leave her behind, you know, um, in Caritas. So she really, she may not quite understand Fred, but she certainly cares about her, I think. Um, you know, and takes that personally, you know, she says to Angel, like, I told her she was safe with me. So, you know, if, if she trusts me, I don't want to, you know, betray that. So, um, and then Fred, like, yeah, kind of pulling a fast one on the group, which is pretty cool, you know, like, she's still kind of going along the episode doing her sort of normal, shy, awkward thing, and then in the end kind of, like, uses that as a smokescreen to, like, turn the tables. Um, Yeah. Which is kind of awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we get some badass Fred. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know that, like, because we've seen a little bit of that, like, with her and Pylea, like... Yeah. You know, she, she... survived for five years or whatever it was right with having to like deal with yeah the demons and monsters and whatever um and and hers being a particularly like uh like intellectual kind of thing like outwitting whoever the enemy is you know like you saw that in pylea and and again here like you know that's her strength is that she can you know, uh, you know, think of, of plans and outwit people and be two steps ahead and trick them into things. Like it's all those sorts of, you know, uh, I don't know, I guess more, you know, brain driven, like that's like, if gun is the muscle, you know, Fred has a particularly cerebral way of going about fighting and everything. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know um, that I have anything else in particular. Is there something we didn't cover? No, I think we're good. I think we can move on. So let's do so. And let's talk okay. about uh, BSG, the Hand of God, mm-hmm. which you said you had a few, like one or two production notes, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I have longer production notes which I might want to talk about a little bit later but I had a couple quick things up front um just wanted to note that this episode um had a Emmy nomination for special effects which uh it did not win because the pilot of Lost was the same year um but obviously this is a big spaceship battle episode so you know a nice showcase for the effects um and wanted to note, uh, the writers are Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, who wrote, uh, Act of Contrition. Um, and I also had a couple quotes from Ron Moore from the commentary for this episode. Um, he, which I think is interesting. Uh, so the, the quote is that we often refer to this episode as the Big Mac because it's sort of fast food. It's like, here's the guilty pleasure. Let's go out and blow stuff up. Let's have some fun. Let's do a war story. Let's go, uh, let's sort of get back to the roots of what the show is about. 
It's an honest episode. It's a Big Mac, but sometimes Big Macs are really good and they taste really great. You just have to be sure that you make them well. Um, and he kind of also talked about how hard it is to get like big celebratory endings to work really well, especially when you have like a dark, gritty drama like this. Hmm. Um, and this is maybe the first episode that, you know, and one of the few episodes of this series that ends on a really big, like high note. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, whether or not you agree with his assessment that this is a Big Mac, um, that's that was his perspective. So just kind of wanted to bring that up that that they saw this as a kind of, you know, a little bit of fan service maybe like let's have something to celebrate, you know. So it's not all you know doom and gloom the whole way through the episode the season. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's yeah. I I when we were sort of planning out the episode here, which, you know, we always go by the plan that we make for every episode that, that we It's all about, about the mission. Um, it's all about the mission. I kind of struggled because, like, we do get, like you said, like, the big explosions and, uh, you know, the, the Big Mac episode. But, mm -hmm. okay, so to take that analogy one step further, mm -hmm. if we've got, if we've got, you know, the big meaty center with all the special sauce and toppings and whatnot. Um, the bun is sort of the uh, supernatural <laughs> spiritual stuff that happens on either end of all of that. I like um, it. That's, yeah, yeah, we don't have to take that any further nope. than that. Um, but yeah, so like I, I wanted to start talking about like the sort of bookends um, because we have we have two sort of like spiritual supernatural things that happen, so to speak, um, more or less, if you believe in that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, so at the beginning we have Roslyn, and we have her sort of like up in front of the press talking about like what are you know very dire, right? Like mm -hmm. we've hit uh, peak tilium, and we're <laughs> you know running running out now, and and. What are we going to do if we don't find more? Um, mm. And of course, like, we've gone pretty much every possible way of, well, I won't, I won't get into that yet. What I want to say is, as she's talking about this stuff, we get the, the, her having these visions. And, you know, we're told it's sort of like a side effect of the Kamala extract that she's mm -hmm. taking, you know, this alternative medication to treat her. Uh, cancer, you know, the, the, oh, you're one of those, Dr. Connell says, right? Um, like, <laughs> uh, and it's apparently like messing with her system. She's having visions of snakes, which turns out to be when she goes and talks to the priest. Mm -hmm. uh, I keep wanting to say priestess, but she's not. She's a priest. Mm. Um, the, the, you know, when, when, Rosalind goes and talks to the priest, you get, um, like, one of the priests is like, are you kidding? <laughs> like, the, like that she's pulling one over on her. Like, maybe she's, yeah. like, tapping into, like, her Sunday school stories and, you yeah. know, saying something. But, but Rosalind seems in earnest, and it turns out that, like, visions of these snakes are 
representative of like the 13 colonies or whatever, or, you know, whatnot. So, um, and, and like they read from like the prophecy of Pythia, who, you know, is a very good person to relate to snakes apparently. Um, so, so you get this sense that like, there's two aspects of it, right? If I remember it correctly, that one, the, the person will like, lead them lead the people to earth Mm. but then also that that person is dying and the priest is like oh but you're not dying so it can't be you right (laughs) which of course we know the whole reason she had the vision is because she's taking this weird alternative medicine for her cancer which is terminal um so anyway yeah, yeah, and I, um, sorry, on the, well, on the Pythia stuff too, um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot more deeper connections to be made too, but a little Googling kind of tells you that, uh, you know, Pythia has to do with like python snakes, like you said, um, but also, uh, you know, Pythia was the oracle at Delphi, which has a specifically uh, Apollo association, you know, and, and it's Apollo who defeats the Python, you know, which kind of gives Pythia its name. So there's all of these sort of our primary world mythological symbols being sort of muddled up within their own, you know, mythologies and everything. Um, which I think lends to that whole this has happened before, this will happen again kind of idea. Um, but, yeah. So... Yeah, and I also kind of want to point out that the like on that theme, the kind of Moses-like quality of of the leader who won't enter the promised land themselves. You know that kind of you know you're you're there to show the way. You're not going to reap the benefit of you know the promised land. Um, hmm. So yeah, which is talking... which is Moses, right? Like that's yeah, the whole yeah, Moses yeah. thing. Like mm-hmm. you're you'll you won't. You'll lead the people, but you won't actually see the land of milk and honey. Exactly. So, yeah. So talking about if that's one half of the bun, talking about the back half. (laughs) The bottom half, yeah. The bottom half of the bun, which is Baltar. um, Which (laughs) Yeah, of course. Of course course Baltar is on the the bottom. bottom. Of course he is. (laughs) Especially with Rosalind, you know. Um, So... Where to go from there? Um, Like, that's not the first time where we've had that mirroring of Roslyn and Baltar. You know, like, with we talked about Leoben as the kind of mystical Cylon whispering things which may or may not be true into her ear and giving her sort of visions and talking about God and all these things. And you have the same thing going on with Baltar and six, you know, slightly differently, but kind of a similar idea. Um, I've, you know, in this episode, which is like called the hand of God, which is a very sort of practical military episode. Like we have a physical problem, which we have to physically solve with our ships and guns and we have to physically go out and take care of this. Like, this is the most kind of material and straightforward plot you can ask for. 
And yet, on like you said, on these bookends, you have this idea of the kind of, you know, divine fate or intervention. So, okay, the hand of God. Who's the hand of God? If there is, if there is one at all, mm-hmm. is it Roslyn with her Pythian prophecies and visions, or is it Baltar? Right. You know who. Right. As who God divinely inspires his hand when he takes a random wild guess that he right. then interprets in a very messianic kind of like chosen one sort of way of I am the instrument of God, you know, there, which kind of implies that there are no other like he is the one instrument, you know, God is going to speak and act through me and my decisions and everything. Um you know, and so those are your kind of alternatives that you're presented with, you know. Yeah. Which it kind of occurs to me too. One is specifically, you know, Rosalind's thing is very specifically their old gods, their their polytheistic pantheon, you know, of of Pythia and Cobal and the lords of Cobal and everything. Yeah. It's it's the human religion. Whereas Baltar's is, ex- even though Six says there's one God and he doesn't choose sides, Baltar's still speaking of it in the sense of there is one God and he's chosen me as his sort of representative, um, yeah. which is sort of a more of a, a Cylon idea, I guess. Right. Um, or up to this point anyway, it seems to be. Yeah. Well, right. Like the, the sort of official, like if not like official religion, but like the sort of popularly accepted and sort of like the, you know, state acknowledged religion anyway, is mm-hmm. like, you know, the Lords of Cobol and all mm-hmm. of that. Um, but, and, and like the, the monotheistic religion of the Cylons is sort of the new, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like taking over religion, which, you can look at it in kind of two different ways, right? Like, cause I feel like in like sort of America today and well, probably America as it's always been, <laughs> you know, it's sort of been, you know, Christianity, which has been the, if not the state religion, cause like we don't officially have a state religion, but like it's, you know, the religion that's most well known. Most people have mm-hmm. at least nominally been members of that religion, you know, you know, for mm-hmm. a long time. And, and there's like lots of sort of little things encoded in our cultural and political history, you know, relating to Christianity and that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But like, if you look, if you look at it sort of going back a long time ago, like to like Roman ages, you have more of like the pagan, like many mm-hmm. gods kind of thing going on, which of course we, we have, uh, or, or like, you know, Greek or whatever, like, mm-hmm. you know, you have with like Apollo and mm-hmm. later with like Athena and stuff like that. And, um, the Lords of Cobal sort of seem to be, yeah, you know, like along those lines. And then you have like the monotheistic religion of Christianity mm-hmm. sort of coming in. Well, I mean, you have Judaism and stuff too before that, but, um, sort of being the sort of oddball, mm-hmm. you know, thing coming in. So, um, Anyway, I don't know that I have, like, a big insight about that, just sort of 
noting that those are the two things. But you're right. Like one one half of the bun definitely has sesame seeds on it. Like <laughs> like there's <laughs> there's definitely a um, you know a different uh, aspect to each of these each mm-hmm. of these you know things. So maybe they're both hands of God. Mm-hmm. God maybe has two hands. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And their own attitudes to themselves as, you know, Rosalind's, you know, again, she's the leader who, who will suffer the wasting disease and die before, you know, she reaches, you know, it's, it's put in this position of leadership. Yes. But also like service to the mission and the, the greater good of the people and their, you know, their death and rebirth as the priest puts it. But like, then you have Baltar who as ever, you know, there's no thought for the mission and the greater good. It's, it's put, uh, self-centeredly as I am the instrument of God, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. even his sort of pose at the end, like his sort of Christ-like you know, like that shot of him from above where he's sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. in his robe with his arms sort of outstretched, like looking, you know, very sort of uh, messianic and everything. Um, you know, where he's the center of it, like, you know, God will work through him and everything. Um, although it's not that it doesn't have anything to do with the larger, you know, picture because... You know, he kind of has to, (laughs) he, uh, after randomly picking the spot where they should bomb, it sort of hits him that if he guesses wrong, you know, that's it. You know, himself included, that is the end of humanity. So he certainly has a sense of the larger importance of, you know, his actions and everything, I think. Yeah. Um, Even though I think his own inclusion in the extinction of humanity is kind of what puts it, you know, at the top more than anything else. Sure. Sure. So, all right. We've talked about the bun. Let's talk about the main contents of the, uh, the big Mac here. Um, (laughs) pretty straightforward mm-hmm. um like i so okay so what i was going to say before um when i was talking about Roslyn is that like we seem to be having like this escalating um or continuing maybe not escalating uh issues of like you know struggles to manage and maintain resources right like we've we've run out of water already. Um, we've already worried to some degree, I think about food or maybe I'm wrong. Like we've worried, we, uh, we've worried about weapons and had to restock, you Mm -hmm. know, weapons. Um, now of course fuel, right? Like we've got the, the, the fuels running out. So, um, which, okay. Like that on the one hand, like that's fine, but it's like, I also feel like, okay, like let's, Let's talk about other things, like at some point, like then, sure. The next, the next resource-related problem um, 
Yeah. Like, we know these are going to happen. You're in space. You're not, like, you know, you don't have, like, abundant resources yeah. around. So, but, um, yeah. Yeah, so, which I think, if my memory serves, is very specifically, like, a season one concern. You know, is not that it never comes up again, but there is a sense of sure. that's something well, we have to deal with up front. And then we have other concerns sort of later And, and you story. get, like... Like, they say, even in this episode, right, like, isn't it like, yay, now we have fuel for five years. <laughs> like, yeah. like you know, like, we have plenty, plenty to go on from here yeah. on out. So, like, yeah. that's kind of like the writer's yeah. way of saying, all right, we're not going to deal with this again. Like, this is going to last us through the it. rest of the series. Yeah, yeah we've, we've explained <laughs> how they have enough fuel to keep going. Well, let's move on. I um, think they and even kind of later the same, on. Sorry. I, I, think, I think later on they even specify that they have a ship that's like a refinery so they can yeah. even keep like making like like whatever supplies they have they can keep right. refining and 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 resupplying the ships with with more fuel and everything right and they don't even well i think that becomes so not to jump ahead too much right but doesn't that become like the contention like the refinery ship gets like taken over yes yeah um, that that does yeah like the the loss of that becomes uh, a plot point later on. Um, but yeah, like we don't have to, you know, fuel might still be an issue if we get separated from each other, but no longer do we have to go out and search for asteroids to mine it. Like that, that sort of lasts us through the remainder of the story. So we've, once we deal with that, we don't, same thing with the water. I think we never really have that same problem again. Um, right. Right. Well, and like, I think even in that episode, like, they explained how, like, they're so efficient, like, they can, they can, you know, manage yeah, all of their yeah. recycling and everything. Like, they, they actually lose very little water. Mm -hmm. um, and also, like, like, you got to wonder how much, I, I think we may have brought this up before, like, after they restocked their, um, you, you know, their ammunition supplies... Like, and then they, like, expend, like, all this ammunition, like, protecting the fleet as they're escaping from the Ragnar station, right? Like, it's like, how much ammunition can they actually store on, like, that Battlestar Galactica? Because they shoot off a lot of bullets and missiles. Yeah. No, and it, it's, a, it's a tough line to walk because, on the one hand, you want them to address those kind of concerns of like okay how are they getting all this endless supplies of everything but on the other hand as you said you can only do too many episodes of that before you start to say all right what other problems do we have you know like you start to it's like we're going to do the episode where we run out of this resource and that can become like a tedious thing so you know it's sure. a it's a fine line i feel like they do a pretty good job of like that's a very important question in season one and less so as it goes on, you know, as like the problems right. get bigger and deeper and morph slightly. Um, it's not just about the practicality of how are we going to survive like out here, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but we're still in those early, the halcyon days when, the, when our biggest problem was how are we going to get more fuel? Like, the days that they will look on back on fondly and wish that that was their biggest problem. Sure. Sure. Um, 
I think another thing though that so getting beyond sort of the the is that I guess that's the MacGuffin, right? Like I mean, the, the getting fuel is the MacGuffin, right? In sure. this episode, um, but like getting beyond beyond that specifically, the uh, there's also a sense here of like this is really the first uh, uh, tactical win against the Cylons, mm-hmm. like. And like, not just win, but like attack, like, Mm. like not like they've successfully defended themselves and then run away from Cylons before, Mm -hmm. but that's all they've been doing. Like they've, they've only been running since the initial attack. And this is the first time where they actively, you know, go up against the Cylons and like like on the offensive to, you know, take away their, you know, to destroy their base so that they can achieve some strategic goal and, and they yeah. win, you know, they, they're successful in that. Um, which seems significant, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, not like we don't even know. So what's interesting to me is that the Cylons, first of all, are here. Because we don't know exactly the path that they've been taking to this point, right? Um, presumably, it's always been away from Caprica. Mm-hmm. Like, and presumably in something of a straight-ish line. Like, not precisely straight, because then they would run into Cylons, because the Cylons would be able to predict where they're going, mm-hmm. right? If it was, mm-hmm. you know, completely straight. But, right. but like... Maybe, maybe while not always being straight away from Caprica, like generally in a in a way direction, um, I would guess that that would also mean they were going away from where the Cylons' territory is. Hmm. Um, although we don't actually know where the Cylons are and where their territory is. So, like on the one hand, like one of the things that, that sort of intrigues me is that there's not, not only are there Cylons here, but there's a base with like enough in- infrastructure that the Cylons themselves are like mining it. Right. For sure. To, like, I mean, you presume that that's why the Cylons are there because of the Tilium, right? Like right, that right. is something they use as well. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, no, that's true. I hadn't really, thought about it that way before but they do get ahead of them well you know i I guess and i'm not even like implying that like it's a flaw in the plot or anything because i think maybe the point is just that the cylons have spread out much further than anyone had anticipated right Mm -hmm. because like nobody had anticipated the attack on the cylons Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. maybe maybe the cylon territory isn't as confined as you might otherwise think it would be Right. You know, so like maybe it's just that it's not even that the Cylons are here because like they jumped ahead and are waiting for the Galactical to just like right. run into them. Right. Like maybe the Cylons spread out here 10 years ago and set up a base here and have been mining yeah. Tilium since then. I mean, there's no right. specific answer to that question. I'm just I'm just sort of musing like, yeah, like it seems to me like given that heretofore the Galactica and the whole fleet has been 
moving generally away from Caprica, the, the fact that you find like an established Cylon base at this mm-hmm. point is intriguing and, you know, yeah, doesn't seem likely, but yet here it is. Well, and going back to the like Big Mac idea of like, this is their first real tactical victory. Um, I think it's like the, along with that, it's the first time that the Cylons really seem like a beatable force. Like, as sure. long as as long as they are the faceless, insurmountable horde that's chasing you across the universe, you're always going to be, you know, uh, feeling like the underdog. But here, in a situation where they sort of stumble upon them and have the opportunity to think and plan tactically, they are a match. You know, um, so it it sort of is giving that first glimmer of, oh, there could actually be hope in this situation. It doesn't have to just be an endless chase through space, you know? Um, if if given the right circumstances, we can actually stand up to them. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think Adama kind of makes that point, although I like that, like, it's sort of, Adama's thing of, okay, this is the time to stand up to them and, you know, we're going to punch the bully and then it'll back down. It's also, like, that's true and it's inspirational, but it's also born of, like, their uh, desperation. Like, they literally can't afford to jump away and keep running. So they have no choice but to stand up to them. So it's not quite as optimistic as it sounds. It's like, it's that sense of, you know it's this or, or, you know, we're going to run out of fuel in the middle of nowhere. Um, but it works, you know, like whether it was all kind of a bunch of like, you know, waffle on Adama's part, he's right. You know, they, they do it well enough. And, you know, his, his sort of prediction seems to be true that if you do kind of hit them where it hurts in an unexpected way, it can actually buy you some time and make a difference, at least in the short term. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, And yeah, I mean, certainly the desperation plays into that, but also, I mean, you know, it's interesting because like in that desperation, you also get, you know, if we want to sort of move into the more linear plot of the episode, mm-hmm. um, you get the sense, you get that uh, aspect of Adama pulling Starbuck into like help plan the attack and that sort of thing, right? So it becomes like, at what other point would they have Starbuck being the one to help plan an attack? Like, there's there's not another time really that I can think of like, yes, she's the CAG and yes, she like goes out and, and, you know, orders pilots and sort of in the field has like a good sense of what needs to be done. And, you know, like there's even some allusion to that, you know, from like Lee, who's like, Oh, you know, I'm not going to be pulling like some crazy move like Mm -hmm. Starbuck would or whatever. But, um, but she's not the strategic person. Like that's mm-hmm. all like in the moment reactionary, mm. just, you know, 
good instincts and quick reflexes kind of stuff. It's not, it's not planning. It's not strategy. It's, you know, um, you know, very different from all of that. So, so this seems like a different, this is like, you know, new Lieutenant Thrace Mm -hmm. who, you know, isn't quite, isn't battle ready. So she has to like sit back and, you know, think about things and let other Mm -hmm. people like not just think about things, but like plan things in such a way where you're actively putting other people in danger. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You feel the weight of that when she and Adama are talking about that and the, you know, that of like, welcome to the big leagues. Like, yeah, you might think that it's a lot of responsibility to be out fighting and having like the weapon in your hand, but how much more so when you're the general who's back and sending lives out in front of you, you know, like now, like you don't have the control of being in the cockpit and being able to like protect your nuggets and everything. You have to tell, send them out and hope that they come back and, and hope that you did a good enough job in planning that you won't be the reason that they don't come back. And there's nothing you can do about that. (laughs) And like that in a way is way more responsibility than being like the leader on the field. Um, You know, like it feels like in the place of most position, like, you know, highest position up in the CIC making, calling the shots, you're actually in a way like the most powerless to actually affect anything. Um, You just have to sort of sit back and, you know, wait for the reports to come in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the role reversal with, with Apollo and Starbuck, because she's the one who's forced to sit back and be thoughtful and careful and not go out and risk her life and do crazy stunts. And he gets to go out and risk his life and do crazy stunts, you know? And he says, oh, I'm not going to pull it out with some crazy Starbucks move. But that's exactly what he does. Um, right. You know, he flies into the conveyor belt thing and they're all like, is he crazy? Like, only Starbucks would do something that crazy. Like, like, that's the kind of crazy, you know, no one in their right mind kind of move that she kind of has trademarked. Um, which is exactly how he sort of wins in the end. Is right making that impulsive in the moment decision, like you said. Yeah. Um, Which, you know, and I guess thinking of it that way too, is a role reversal for him as well. Like, I mean, that's, you know, he's the planner. He's the, you know, strategist like his father. Mm -hmm. Um, And not that they're bad pilots. They're not by all accounts. They're both very good pilots. They're just, they're not Starbuck good. Right. (laughs) You know, they're, they're better than average, but they're not, upper echelon you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah no he, i think starbuck and apollo kind of end up in each other's sort of places a little bit this episode and neither yeah. like they both do well with it but they're not comfortable fits like they're both sort of each would probably rather be where the other one is um mm. and you know it's not easy to sort of let back you sit back and watch the other one do that job. Um, yeah. You know, I think Starbuck is pretty, Lee keeps talking about how 
nobody has confidence that he'll do well. And I think certainly from Starbuck, you get that sense of she's not so sure. Like, <laughs> you know, she says like, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. But, you know, I think she's clearly would rather be doing that job herself and thinks that she would do a better job. Um, hmm. You know, and gives him that kind of idea of, you know, if you start overthinking and analyzing things, this is not going to go well. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, okay, so we get, hey, we need Tillian. Oh, hey, look, there's some Tillian. Oh, darn, there's some Cylons in the way. Oh, well, let's come up with a plan to defeat the Cylons. Oh, look, we had a backup plan to, you know, overcome the plan we knew would fail. Plan, mm -hmm. You know, um, all the, the, the sort of twists in that, um, like we talked a little bit about, you know, the potential for this type of episode, given, given sort of that it is a, a cheap and easy meal. Um, although <laughs> McDonald's isn't that cheap these days either. Like I feel, I feel like, um, but yeah, like the, the sort of fast food aspect of it. Um, there is that sense of like, oh, it's like twist, twist, and then maybe one twist too many. But mm. um, we were talking sort of before we were recording, like this is how this is maybe an example of, um, you know, the the surprisingness versus surprise that we've talked about before, the sort of C.S. Lewis um, distinctions there where there's actually a story reason. And, and I want to talk a little bit about what, the story reason might be like on the one hand. Um, so speaking specifically of the fake, the, the, like, you know, there's the planned fake out of like, Oh, you know, let's draw the Cylons away with these ships that we're going to have keeping their FTLs powered up. And then we'll attack from this other direction and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But then the Cylons, of course, figure that out pretty quickly and like ignore the ships uh, you know, the freighters that they have sort of as the, you know, sitting ducks, so to speak, um, mm -hmm. and go after the fleet. And then, of course, the trick, again, you know, the, the, the second trick is that those freighters actually aren't sitting ducks. They're full of vipers as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they go and that's what attacks the, the base and, yeah. you know, ends up being the Cylon's downfall. Mm -hmm. um, and of course that takes us by surprise. Well, I mean, maybe it didn't take everyone by surprise who watched it. Like maybe some people sort of figured that out, but the intent there is sort of to take us as the audience by surprise. But there's also a story reason, as you sort of pointed out that like it's, it takes Roslyn by surprise, like that mm -hmm. there's, there's more than, one audience that's taken by surprise, right? It's not mm -hmm. just the watchers. It's, it's the people in the story itself, which gives it that, uh, you know, feeling of surprisingness, which mm -hmm. might otherwise just sort of like feel like a cheap twist in a story. Sure. Um, so I, so just thinking about that a little bit, like, I'm not like I'm not 100% sure why they need to surprise Rosalind, 
my my sort of first thought is that these are civilian freighters, right? So like they have to lay out their plan to Roslyn in order to like get permission to use these civilian freighters. Um, although they're not really hers to like give, I guess, I guess they just commandeered them somehow or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, like sure. just cause she's a president doesn't mean they're her freighters specifically. Like this is still a democracy, not a dictatorship, but uh-huh. um, maybe she's, Maybe through diplomacy, she's able to convince, right? You know, the people to to give them for a good cause, kind of thing. Because you know, again, we are in sort of dire straits and, and desperate situations here. So, right, right. Um, yeah. So the idea here being that m- maybe they knew if they told Roslyn what was going on that she wouldn't help them out like that, that if they told her the full plan, you know, she wouldn't be approving of it, which is Mm -hmm. certainly possible. Um, I don't know if there's another possible explanation. Do you have any thoughts there? To me, I feel like Cylon sabotage is still a possibility. Sure. Um, And so there's just a sense of maybe, only who absolutely needs to know gets told the 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 card that we have up our sleeve because if that leaked out it would you know it would you know everything would fall apart so sure. you know the, sure. the, the, the plan makers and the plan executors are the only ones who actually know that this is you know and once Although- they have and once they have Rosalind's permission to use the freighters, we don't have to give her the details of how we're going to use the freighters. Yeah. You know? at, at this point, do we know? So, like, because the last episode was all about, you know, uh, testing the highest level uh, people to see if they're Cylons. Like, sure. Has that happened at this point? Like, uh, can no we idea. assume? Can we assume I, at this point? I would point assume that, like, that they have. But yeah. Uh, like at least a few days have gone by, right? Yeah. Like I mean, I don't think we actually know that for sure. I would imagine that they have, but like, I think that could still make sense, even if we have tested people that, you know, there's still a kind of, you know, need to know thing that's ingrained enough in Adama that um, better safe than sorry, especially with something this important where you know the fate of the entire fleet sort of rests on the secrecy of that part of the plan Mm. um so like i don't know that it's i don't think it's suspicion aimed at Roslyn in particular um but i think just general sense of wanting to restrict those that level of detail in general so that was always my feeling anyway Sure. And it could be a combination of, of both those explanations. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I feel like, you know, the twist is fine. Like, I don't, I don't have a problem with it or anything, but just sort of wanted to talk through that a little bit because I do feel like if we're looking at this again as like a Big Mac episode, like that could be a criticism of... Sure. Like, hey, there's maybe one too many, like, twists. Like, it, maybe it's a little too neat. Mm. Um, but, yeah, like, I 
I want to push back against his Big Mac statement a little bit because okay. I kind of feel like, yeah, it it tastes good, but is that always like the the Big Mac implication to me is that it's it's fast food, it's empty calories, it's not good for you. It might taste good, but you know, it's not really nourishing. Um, sure. Whereas, you know, I don't like in a in a series that's kind of as his thing implies, like pretty very dark and grim and like harsh a lot of the time. I find an episode like this very nourishing, you know, like in the sense of you Hmm. need that release of tension every so often. And it's not just if it's done well, it's not just like indulging in like, you know, these fanciful like ideas, but actually a necessary bit of, you know, hope, I guess. Sure. And release. Yeah. Yeah. And, and any sense of, oh, we actually, uh, things can go right occasionally and things can work out. And sometimes there is something worth celebrating. So it's not just like, you know, why, why do the characters keep going or why do we keep going with the series? If it's just, you know, terrible all the time, if you're not given those moments of, you know, some, uh, happiness i guess Mm. um or sense of like triumph so uh so i think it has a i think that does it does a disservice to call it you know i mean i don't disagree that a big mac tastes good but like i think this episode has more to offer than that kind of like suggests sure sure um yeah and i i would i would Agree with that. It, it, so basically, you're saying it's more about balance than sure. Than, yeah, exactly. You know, saying that like one is good and one is bad or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, for me personally, anyway, I always tend to like that. Like, you know, a, a variety of is the spice of life, and that's what keeps you interested and invested. Is I I it, I think it's boring if anything is just the same every week. You know, and sure. Um, and it doesn't have to be, uh, 50-50, you know? I'm happy to let the show be very, very dark if, if occasionally we get a sense of, um, why we're tuning in (laughs) or why, why it's worth keeping going. Why do you even bother to keep fighting, you know? Um, so giving you some sort of glimpse of those reasons I think is good, like for the health of the show. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know you wanted to talk a bit about the end specifically. Yeah, um, and I feel like I feel like that's a good transition to what I wanted to talk about. Because um, I really want, and I have some links which I'll include in the show notes, but I have some notes about... Um, the big musical cue, which they kind of set up uh, sort of halfway through the episode when when uh, Adama gives Lee the lighter. Um, and you hear the, you know, first of uh, the, I forget if it's the bagpipes or some sort of Celtic, you know, wind instrument comes in. Um, and then at the end, 
when they've won and they're all sort of celebrating with the champagne on the deck and everything, you get the full, you know, choral version with full kind of Celtic orchestra um, and even like, you know, vocals. You know, you get like people singing, you know, in in Gaelic and everything in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, So... One, I want to talk about it just because I think it's a really nice piece of music. Um, and I mentioned, I think, when we started that I wanted to point out the score by Bear McCreary when it was appropriate. Um, so this is called Wander My Friends, um, also known as the Adama theme. Um, <laughs> so, and so I'll link to, in addition to scoring pretty much every show on TV, he finds time to write a blog. Um, and has pretty extensive blogs about, like, you know, the entire score of Battlestar Galactica as well as other things. Um, Mm. So he has some interesting notes about it. Um, And also, it's a little spoilery for future things if people haven't seen the whole show yet, but he did one of those, like, Google Talks. Um, Mm. And it's it's pretty interesting because he talks about, like, his career in general, but um, specifically he talked about the score... Um, and how, when the show started, when he first was, and this was really his first job, um, that he had as like, you know, the composer for a TV show. Um, and he was very worried, he was very worried that he was going to get fired if he did anything that they said not to do. So in the beginning, their instructions to him were that there were to be no, uh, musical themes, um, because they had this association of big operatic themes with, like, the things they were trying to steer away from, like, Star Trek and Star Wars. And they wanted something a little more subtle and realistic. Um, okay. So he stuck because, to that. Because of all the real space music. Exactly. Um, and so he, he stuck to that in general um, so that he wouldn't get fired. But he would sneak in little tiny little subtle musical themes um, so subtle that they didn't even notice them most of the time. Um, Because really, what is music without the themes? Um, Right. And eventually, I think at some point in the first season, they specifically said, hey, don't you have like a boomer theme? Maybe you could use that over here. And then he realized, oh, maybe themes aren't as taboo as they thought. Um, And if they're done well, they can be incorporated. So he felt freer to get a little more adventurous. Um, Which is interesting when you get to this episode, because it's like the big theme. Like, it's so big, there's like singing in it. (laughs) Right. Like, who are these people who are singing and these lyrics? And it's like as unsubtle a theme as you can get. Um, Well, and it's, it's, you said it's the Adama theme, right? Right, right. Yeah, so it's like associated with the characters and... Which Adama, though? I or is it like Adamas, the family? Plural, yeah, like the family yeah. of the Adamas. It's like the relationship between, you know, a, you know, Adama and Lee, and their history is embodied in, and it's, it's a specifically like, it's a happy theme, it's a celebratory theme, it's all these things sure. that they don't didn't want, in, they thought they didn't want in the music, until he kind of showed them, Something. oh, maybe we do want it. Um, yeah. And so he kind of talks about in that Google talk that things from here start to change in the music, that he expands on the themes and adds to them. He starts using more diverse instruments. So 
in here you get like the Celtic, you know, flavor, but he expands into other, you know, world music and everything. Um, And he kind of talks about how just like this episode doesn't really fit in terms of it being triumphant, this, you know, the theme of this music doesn't really fit everything that we've heard so far. Like it feels like a different tone than what we've had. Mm -hmm. Um, But it fits with the episode, obviously. Um, And so, yeah, he says like it brings to mind the warmth and compassion and military honor and nobility, you know, um, and just as a side note, I don't know if you've watched Outlander, but, um, this feels like the, the, uh, his trial run for that. Like he's waiting for the day that he could write like Braveheart music, you know, like the big, um, you know, Celtic arrangement and everything. So it, for some reason that, comes very naturally to him. Um, but anyway, I wanted to point that out because I think as it goes on, the music becomes more and more prominent and even more and more of a sort of player and a character in the series. And so I feel like for me, this is the first episode where I really like notice it, where it's not just, you know, some subtle sort of background ambient sound, but actually music with a melody that I can recognize and remember and sort of follow along with so sure. um sort of to go along with the turning point in the tone it sort of there's a little uh shift in the way that you know the music acts in the show and everything right yeah yeah no that's definitely interesting and i mean it's hard not to notice the music but i oh, yeah. cer- certainly didn't know all of that about it so yeah well cool. if i the blog his blog i recommend um he at a certain point i forget where he starts blogging about like every episode individually like at length <laughs> so like oh, i really? forget it's in like season three or four like towards the end like every single episode you can find like detailed notes of exactly like what his ideas were for the score and everything so, um, hmm. if anybody's interested in, uh, how music works on film, it's kind of an interesting read. Cool. So. So, uh, we should probably just bring up Hilo and Sharon yeah. at the end. Um, not much, you know, again, it's just like another scene where like mm-hmm. we've talked about before, like if we sort of stitch them all together, then eventually they'll make an episode. Right. Um, but just brief they're you know, it's like raining out. And so they're in a barn and uh, Sharon throws up. Mm-hmm. Not sure why. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she says it, it must it must have been the uh, the the uncooked beans she ate previously that's probably it um and then they see number six Mm -hmm. uh and then they sort of run because they're like wait didn't we kill her yeah um well hilo is anyway i mean obviously sharon knows what's going on but Right, right um yeah so you know we we know that like Sharon isn't following the plan 
-hmm. now, right? So this is, you know, something's going on to sort of want her to, to cause her to run away, you know, they were supposed to go to like, what, some cabin or something, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know what to say much more because that's just kind of it. Like we don't get explanation or whatever. Like we don't even really know where they are. We know they're just still sort of wandering. I guess they're they're trying to get to a spot where they think they can get a ship off planet, but Right, right. Besides that, um Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's not uh, doesn't give you a whole lot of, you know, stuff to chew on. Um But yeah, like I mean Maybe uh, you mentioned maybe at the end of the season we'll have more to say once we kind of put all the pieces together and have a complete Hilo and Sharon plot to talk about. It might be a little, uh, there might be some more to say. But I do like the way, you, you don't ever feel like it's just a repeat of, oh, it's Hilo and Sharon running away again, doing the same thing. Like, I kind of like the the way that each time we see them, even though it's only, like, once an episode, like, there is a progression. You know, like, something new happens each time. And I think when you do put them all together, they do kind of form a story. Um, so it's like each time you're getting some piece of information that you didn't have before. And this one, sure. I think, is is definitely the, you know, Sharon's throwing up. Um, you know, it's... it's yeah pretty obvious what that means um and actually it it made me think certainly yeah it made me think like oh Hilo doesn't know and then I realized like well duh of course Hilo should know if he's paying attention like he was there (laughs) like it shouldn't be uh it's not like it's a secret to him you know what what happened between them and everything so you know um it hasn't maybe occurred to him yet but uh you know, it's not like it's exactly a secret either. So, um, anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, although, I mean... Although, like, not, there is, it doesn't... There that is, would be maybe There is the radiation. You know, there's, sure, there's sure. radiation. They are, like, presumably eating raw foods and stuff, like, mm-hmm. and potentially tainted foods of some kind. Um, right. Right. It's raining out, like, you know, they're exposed to the elements, you know, they could pick up viruses here and there. I right. I feel like Yeah, there are other there, like explanations. Yes, like knowing what happened and putting two and two together, you can kind of suss out. But like I do feel like there's enough sort of mm-hmm. logical in world reasons why she could be throwing up that aren't Hey, I'm pregnant, you know. Right, right. Um, so, yeah. Oops, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think even if you haven't watched the show, though, you're you're sort of prompted to think that way. Um, yeah, well, and, and we do get shots of Sharon looking uh, concerned in, in a way that implies it, even if Hilo doesn't see it. Sure. You know, um you can kind of see that she's at least maybe only not really telling him the full truth. So, um, or at least she doesn't, that's what she thinks. So, yeah. And also no Cylon has ever been pregnant before. So like maybe she doesn't, maybe she doesn't know what's going on. 
Right, right. It's true. Anyway. All right. Well, I think we have had our Big Mac and now it's time to go <laughs> let it digest for a while. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll be back with some more uh, BSG next week and uh, some more Buffy. We'll, we'll get some, uh, I think, yeah. although yes, I, I'm, I, I'm double checking. And yes, it is <laughs> I was going to say, like, I forget that, like, now we have this new, uh, order to contend with. So, um, yeah. but I believe, yeah, more Buffy next week. Um, yeah. yeah. And so we'll, we'll get to hear maybe her talk like more than a few words this time around. So, <laughs> um, or maybe not, you never know. All right. All right. See you then.